Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code ARCPODNETFEED at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And, and my, my trowel. Hello, you're listening to episode nine of And My Trowel, where we look at the fantastic side of archaeology and the archaeological side of fantasy. I'm Tilly. And I'm Ash. <laughs> and today we are going to be talking all about dragons. Very, very exciting. Very exciting. And joining us today to help us on our quest is a dragon rider and zoo archaeologist who we met on the road. Alex Fitzpatrick. Woohoo! <laughs> Thank you for joining us today, Alex. Lovely to meet you. What a coincidence to meet you on the road like this. I mean, it's, I know. it's you know, <laughs> it's as if fate had purpose for us. So you are, as Ash mentioned, a zoo archaeologist, but what exactly is your specialism? How did you get into that topic? So I am technically a zoo archaeologist of specifically later prehistoric Britain expanding slightly into the medieval uh, on accident. So real quick, when I started my PhD, I was told I was going to do later prehistoric Britain. And I spent all my time studying and learning all about later prehistoric Britain until we got the dates for 90% of the bones we were looking at. And wouldn't you know it, it turns out to all be medieval. So six six months before I was supposed to hand in my PhD... (gasps) I had to basically learn all about the medieval and (gasps) post-medieval. I mean, could you not have just done two PhDs, like one on like the theory of post, like late prehistory and then like a very short one on? Like, yeah, strangely, that was frowned upon. Oh. So yeah, I just learned real quick. But you know, it was really interesting. And that's now, I guess, what I know. <laughs> I know everything. Well, yeah, that, yeah. that's great. <laughs> and you mentioned you've you finished the PhD. What are you working on right now? Are you still doing research? So I'm, I'm, I'm finally writing up my PhD yeah, and that's nice. about as much of the archaeology I do now. I've kind of moved into museum researching, so not as bone-y, but <laughs> still heritage-y, but I'm still doing a little bit of Zurich on the side, mainly through actually writing up all this stuff. The sad part about your PhD is you have to write it twice, basically. Right? (laughs) Bad. It would be so nice if you could just do like a podcast episode on it. Yeah. And I've done many. I've done many. (laughs) But they won't, you know, I mean, I feel like they should because, you know, like in the UK, at least you can, you know, do like a PhD by publication, right? You should be able to do a PhD by podcasting. It's 20. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. You should find like, and it can still be peer reviewed. You can still, you know, because then you can have follow ups. So you can do your thing. That's, that's so open access as well. That's like a really nice, transparent way to do research because you do your episode and then the reviews would come back and you'd be like so these were the reviews (laughs) this is what i need to change and yeah it would be 
I, I like that. <laughs> I like that too. It's easier, I think. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's not right. like terrifying when you do like your Viva and all that kind of stuff too. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I did my, my, my Viva at home because I obviously did it during a pandemic. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I was surrounded by cats at my mother-in-law's house. So like oh. that was really nice. And at least then you can like turn off the computer and just go and, you know, collapse on the sofa and go ah! <laughs> rather than having to then also like go for drinks with people afterwards or something and, <laughs> and try and be social. Yeah, basically I turned off my laptop and I went headfirst into a cat. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds ideal. I, may, I have my defense coming up next week, actually. Well, um, by the time this podcast goes out, hopefully it'll be done and dusted. But yes, slightly. Try, try not to think about it too much. Good luck. Good luck. Thank you. It'll be okay. If I can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> well, and and we mentioned their podcast, so indeed, we should have started out with that, that you have been running the fantastic Archeo Animals podcast, which I think then by the time this episode goes out, the last episode of, of your podcast will be out as we're coming out uh, mid-December. So I don't yeah, know. yeah, it probably know. will be. Um, so we did over about five and a half years, basically. Wow. So good run. Mm. You know, things have to come to an end. I think at some point we would run out of actual topics you can only talk so much about animal bones i think (laughs) we're really starting to stretch for material but it was good you know we had really good feedback from people and lots of people who emailed us saying like you know this is the first time they've ever even heard of zoo archaeology that was the whole point of the podcast Yeah, yeah and i know there's people who ended up doing podcasts because of the uh the Influencer. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, nice. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I love your podcast. I especially like the ones, as you can probably tell, because we started this podcast, I especially like the ones which, they're like fantastical creatures or the the kind of, oh, what was the word? There was a word that you used in the titles and I can't remember what it is now. Cryptids. Yes, that's the one. Cryptids, Mothman. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the ones that aren't actually based in science or exactly. archaeology, are, I think <laughs> yeah. the ones that are most popular, strangely enough. Well, we tried. We tried to put zoo archaeology in everything. And sometimes that means we decided to talk about video games we liked or whatever. It's fine. <laughs> Well, we've, you know, made a whole podcast out of it now, but just being able to talk about fantasy. <laughs> Although, so before we go into that, though, so obviously you are a fan of zoo archaeology, if it's, you know, perpetrating every part of your life, it sounds like. What do you enjoy about this topic? Why did you get into zoo archaeology in particular? Okay, so the the, the, the kind of professional, thought-provoking answer is <laughs> that I find, I do find, like, the fact that animals really embody so much of like everything is not just you know looking at animal bones it's thinking about how people think about animals it's how people interact with animals how animals interact with the environment symbolism it's really interesting for me especially for someone who came originally from a anthropological background mm. more so than an archaeological one in my undergrad the, the actual answer is that people want you to know so much about human bone and i found it so overwhelming and <laughs> made me so stressed out that i realized in zoo archaeology people are just happy that you know the difference between like a dog and a horse and <laughs> those kind of bare minimum kind of like low standards is something i strive for so i ended up doing zoo archaeology although 
jokes on me, I ended up doing a fair amount of human osteology in my PhD. There you go. It's karma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it is, zooarchaeology is actually quite difficult as far as how much you have to know. Yeah, I can And there's people who are much better at it than I am. I'm yeah. very much someone who still needs to like have a reference collection. You know, there's people who are like, they can tell you the bone, the side, the age of the animal. Like I, my brain doesn't work like that. I just look at the bone and I'm like, that's not human. And give me five minutes and we can work from there. Well, but I feel like a lot of zooarchaeologists specialize in a particular animal or, or at least species or something, but it sounds like you are more a lot broader. So that must be a lot more difficult indeed to be able to have like all of that knowledge in your brain yeah, in one tap. as specific as I got was more like, like, like I said, later prehistoric Britain, but also really specifically like ritual and funerary mm. approaches to archaeology. So it's still, I think maybe it's the kind of abstract esoteric stuff that I'm more drawn to. To be fair, I did try to become a fishbone person in my master's and that was horrible and never do it again. <laughs> Zero out of 10, <laughs> worst three months of my life. <laughs> I work with a lot of fishbone people and I look at the work they do and think, how? <laughs> how, how, how are you finding this enjoyable? They are, they are God's strongest soldiers. Like. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's the most exciting thing or the, the nice thing about it. And But uh, I imagine that there's also negative aspects potentially to zooarchaeology in particular or something that's frustrating about it or is it all, all roses? <laughs> I think it's sometimes undervalued by non-zooarchs in mm. that you know it's a, it's a very common attitude i feel like of people kind of you're not a zooarch and you like run into some animal bones it's like ugh, like ugh, I'm deal with this and like i share that sentiment with again fish bones small like rodent bones so many amphibians which i've like literally never looked at in my life and i probably have i just don't know it but i i you know i think as much as i dislike those small bones i do also know that there's so much you can learn about it like something like amphibians can tell you so much about the environment mm. or like past environments and there's painful as it is to have to look at these tiny bones you know it's it's kind of worth it sometimes so i think i mean that was part of the reason why we started the podcast is one i didn't think a lot of people even knew about zooarchaeology and two i felt like even in the field it was kind of you know undervalued so i'd hoped maybe this would help i don't think we've helped in fact i'm sure we probably like dinged the <laughs> reputation a bit more so. <laughs> but you know we tried it's fine <laughs> and so now you said you're working in uh, with museum work a lot you're writing up all the papers for the for your phd research i mean should i ask if there's any other plans for the future or is that a question i should steer clear of <laughs> I mean, as a, as a migrant, I would like to just live in this country for the next mm -hmm. couple of years. Yeah, that's it's the thing where like, so I'm doing my postdoc work, right? I'm on my second postdoc. And, mm -hmm. you know, my postdoc supervisors have been great because they're always really keen on professional development. But whenever they ask me like, oh, what are your, you know, career plans? I'm always like, I'd like to pay my rent. I'd like <laughs> to be able to afford to eat. And it's like really hard to get out of the survival mindset, <laughs> which I don't think the PhD helps. Like, I think in an ideal world, it'd be great to like use the PhD to really think about your career. But meanwhile, I think for most people these days, it's kind of like, all right, well, what am I going to do? In yeah, a few great. Months? Four years paid. Great. <laughs> what, what next? <laughs> yeah. Fair. Especially yeah. in the UK as well. It's absolutely mm -hmm. rubbish at the moment. Yeah. 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 
sorry to be a bummer, but <laughs> no, no, no. Well, well, moving on swiftly then. <laughs> <Hopefully>. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but of course, the the rest of this podcast is about fantasy, which I will pass over to my fantasy expert here. Oh, I'm the expert. Fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, do you enjoy reading fantasy, Alex? I mean, again, I'm going to be a bummer. <laughs> I used to, but I think there's something like, I don't know if it's just me, but I think when you start your PhD, you your brain just is like, I can't read anything that's not hard like nonfiction, mm. like papers. Like I've read a loads of nonfiction in the last four years. And whenever I have to try and read something, even not even fantasy, just fiction, I actually really struggle with it. Mm. And yeah, yeah, I can, a lot of people say that, don't they? Especially during their PhD. It, it's mm. really difficult to kind of separate because you feel like all of your time needs to be taken up by research and reading and... Mm. Or even even if you don't have the the guilt factor of it, it's just the fact that you yeah, like Alex said. I mean, even for masters or bachelor's students as well, I've mm. heard the same thing, right? That it's just uh, you're so mentally exhausted <laughs> at the end of a, a day <laughs> that you can't yeah focus too much on. I that. think it's because you like are learning, especially even in your undergrad, you're learning a new way of reading, mm. and then once your brain goes into that mode, it's really hard to get out of it, especially yeah. when you're obviously the sciences. So, you know, before that, you know, you are reading a lot of fiction because of school, because it's Mm -hmm. part of your curriculum. And then after that, it's you're so focused. It's really hard. And I mean, I do I do read. I try really hard to read fiction sometimes. It is kind of a I do really like the, the Kingkiller Chronicles which is probably like the last fantasy I've read, which is The Name of the Wind and oh, Wise yeah. Man's Fear. I really like them. I haven't read them. Yeah. Although, again, it's like one of those like, I don't know, is there like a, a equivalent in fantasy? Because you have like hard science, right? Where it's like very mm-hmm. grounded in like scientific fact. Um, I feel like it's very similar. Like uh, hard fantasy is not like the right word for it, but it's, it's kind of like fantasy. A, high yeah, fantasy and like cozy fantasy, I guess, would be like yeah, the opposite, like, which is my personal favorite. <laughs> Yeah. Like there's like a real science to every, like magic has like a kind of a science, a logic yeah. to it. Yeah. yeah. Which I, again, might be how I got into it because my brain was so like, you know, science focused that I could read it a bit easier. Cause I was like, mm. Oh yeah, no, it's that. And it's one of those fantasy things that has a lot of like lore, which I find, I guess this is also like the anthropology bit of me thinking mm. I like that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think that's kind of why I might try and finally read the A Song of Ice and Fire because uh-huh. I know that's very more heavy. Mm. I, mm-hmm. I feel like that's like a very high fantasy one as well. <laughs> yeah, lots of different perspectives and uh, machinations that you have to follow. And I am rubbish at keeping track of things. I have to sometimes note things down like yeah, this character <laughs> has such and such because I'm like, what? color with a hair again like what did they look like i can't remember i need to go back I give up on that stuff i must yeah. say <laughs> i mean because i read when i was younger probably too young to really read it i read the amber chronicles which is like <gasps> a mix of fantasy and i think i know that one yes yeah, it's like yeah. it's high fantasy but then at some point there's like computers and stuff oh. and it's my dad gave it to me and he it's like 10 books and he gave me like a really big volume that was all the books and i like i said i think i was too young to really like i was I wasn't that young, but I was like not old enough to really appreciate how dense it was. Mm-hmm. But I remember it being really interesting. So I, I, ne- I might need to go back and reread that. But yeah, so <laughs> fantasy, uh, fantasy. So, do you think that's like your your favorite fantasy book? Do you have one? If if it's maybe 
something you're going to dive back into? Is this something that you're going to read apart from like Song of Ice and Fire? <laughs> I think it is the King um, Chronicles. I think that's one mm-hmm. I reread occasionally. Although I keep telling myself like you should stop rereading it and read something else because <laughs> oh, clearly I'm with that as well. <laughs> it's bad, and like I have a huge book log of just like loads of books I collected during my PhD that are on my like Kindle. And it's like a hundred of them. And I'm just like, I need to stop. But it's really hard. I'm so yeah. weak. <laughs> well, to distract you from the never ending TBR list, we have a situation that we need your assistance with, which is why it's very convenient that we've met you here on this road. So uh, we've been given a uh, historic site to analyze. It's up in the mountains, lots of caves, big boulders. Don't even get me started on the mist. Although actually at closer sight, it could be smoke. And indeed, when you look at the ground, it seems to be burnt in lots of different places. A lot of the structures that have been excavated so far appear to have been burnt down. Something that isn't burnt, however, is the burial of a huge creature, winged, almost serpent-like. And when you read the historic accounts of the region, it appears that there were indeed many dragons in the area who would often attack the settlements. However... This is where the situation gets a bit complicated because this particular site was pointed out to us by a dragon. So she flew into the courtyard outside the office one morning, caused quite a stir, to put it mildly, um, and demanded that we discover the true nature of the site and find out as much as we can about the actual dragon buried there. So I would be very interested in hearing your thoughts. But first, I suggest that maybe we move off the road, find a nice sunny spot to maybe set up a picnic or something. So uh, we'll go and find that and we'll be right back. Welcome back. And oh, this is just such a fantastic view. Great spot for a picnic. So Alex, now that we know a bit more about you, know a bit more about the situation, let's maybe get some familiarity with dragons and start thinking about how we tackle this problem. So first of all, what is your experience as a experienced archaeologist and dragon rider? <laughs> what experience do you have with kind of the mythology of dragons or the background of how dragons came to be, shall we say? I mean, yeah, I personally have not really experienced dragons as much in the zooarchaeological context. But I mean, I think dragons are, you know, they're so ubiquitous. They're found across cultures. So I'm I'm mixed. My mom's side of the family is from China. Hmm. So obviously grew up with a lot of dragon paraphernalia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and obviously that's so much different than say dragons from Norse mythology. My dad's side of the family is from Norway. I also had a lot of uh, Norwegian dragons. I was very uh, dragon, very dragon heavy childhood. I think. You're really the perfect guest for this episode. I know. <laughs> yeah. And yet I'm not, a, my my Chinese zodiac is not a dragon, unfortunately. I'm a oh, rooster. That would have been great. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a bummer, but I think my brother's a dragon. But yeah, no, I, I mean... I think, I believe we even talked about dragons on a, a podcast episode on Argue Animals because, you know, God forbid we talk about real animals sometimes, uh, <laughs> more than the mythological ones. But I, we did an episode, I hate to talk, cross talk about podcasts, but that's I, fine, that's fine. I can Go share ahead. this with you I think it's interesting, which yeah, is yeah. we did an episode about, you know, how people in the past looked at fossils because obviously they would run across them. Mm-hmm. So, oh, holy crap. Sorry. Someone just, that? Lit, someone just lit a firework right outside my house. Did someone just get shot? No, okay. Oh my, god. Oh, my god. oh my god, it was a dragon. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's coming for you. Stop talking about it. <laughs> scared me. I'm okay. You okay? Yeah. Good. 
<laughs> anyway, yeah. so one of the things we found when we were like researching for the episode was that so there's Adrian Mayer who has this theory about how you know a lot of mythological creatures probably came from uh, people in the past running into fossilized remains. So with dragons in particular, you know, you're thinking about like people running into dinosaurs or mm-hmm. just generally large prehistoric mammals or reptiles which is to be fair very debatable as a theory but i can't understand where that's coming from they say that about cyclopses too don't they for dinosaur bones or for like other early hominids yeah they think that because of the stocky kind of build that they Mm -hmm. found in the caves around greece that they they kind of conjured the myth of the cyclops and stuff like that Interesting. Yeah, it's either that or there is a species of dwarf elephant that is now ex- extinct, oh. obviously, but we used to live in parts of Italy. Again, a lot of this is very debatable because, you know, we don't really have too much, like, substantial evidence for it. <laughs> but, like, you you can understand where that comes Like, it makes sense in a, yeah. a logical way. Um, I don't think that's the case for everything per se, but, like, with fossils, I mean, that's idea still exists because mm-hmm. in China, dragon bones are referred to as longgu, which is, they're called dragon bones. That's dragon bones in Chinese. And um, they're used as an ingredient in traditional Chinese medicine. And they're basically just fossilized bone, like vertebral oh. fragments of oh. usually prehistoric mammals and reptiles because there's so many regions in China that are just, they have so much fossils on it. Like there's a really big like fossil industry now in parts really? of China. So yeah, so that idea of fossilized bones is that dragon still exists uh, even today, which is really interesting. But interesting yeah. that it is actually bones because I read somewhere about the fact that Eye of Newt is actually like cinnamon or something, or mm, I can't remember. Yeah. Like, So everyone's like, I'm now going to be, add, you know, talking about adding Eye of Newt to all of my Christmas you know, hot chocolates and all these <laughs> yeah. sort of things. But, but dragon bones is actually still bones. So <laughs> that's uh, maybe not. not yeah, a lot of uh, animal products are actually really used in traditional Chinese medicine. Medicine. So we yeah, do yeah. have a lot of that kind of sort of stuff still being used medicinally. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I like that. I that like you mentioned already that it's sort of in all all places. Really, you have something to do with dragons. <laughs> which what's your Ash? What's your favorite? dragon-based mythology do you have one well, <laughs> that sounds yeah. like a very specific question but <laughs> <laughs> i have one from northumberland we have dragons it's actually kind of one of our only stories that survived kind of industrialization and and all that we don't really have many mythology like mythological stories anyway from the north of e- northeast of england but we call them worms Oh, but like W-Y-R-M-S, worms. And there's the Lamberton worm. Mm-hmm. And basically the Lamberton worm is this tiny little worm, right? <laughs> little pink thing that was found. And, and the story goes, it was found in a well by a knight who was going off to the Crusades. Of course, he always goes off to the <laughs> And he was like, oh, look at this tiny little thing. It's so sad. I'll just throw it back in the well. But then when he goes off to the Crusades, the worm grows and grows and grows and eats all the livestock and then terrorizes the villagers. And it's like around Bamber Castle as well. It kidnaps a princess. But there's two Classic. versions of the stories yeah. where it's either his sister or his 
wife to be and he comes back from the crusades and he has to kill this dragon and he kills the dragon saves the princess presumably either she marries another person because that's all of his way or or because it's his sister or (laughs) (laughs) she marries her which is the version where it's not his sister and everyone's happy and the the lamberton worm has been slain Mm. yeah that's the story anyway (laughs) (laughs) that's like the classic dragon story though really right george and the dragon kind of one yeah kind of from from western europe i mean like obviously mm-hmm. in other parts of the world it's yeah it's different and yeah i like obviously like alex mentioned the chinese culture very big symbol what i like as well is that it's always used as a symbol for something powerful like you never have like the soft dragon it's always like yes the, the you know like the welsh flag it's you know the authority of the kings since i, I have a, i have a note here 655 ad where it was known as the dragon of cadwalder which i apologize sincerely to any welsh listeners listening in and bemoaning my pronunciation the king of Gwyn- gwyneth but yeah so there was that's you know the sort of classic one in the uk but then indeed in ancient chinese culture it's always a symbol of imperial power and then yeah there's there's all sorts of cool sculptures that have been found from the now what culture was it the Hong, Hongshan culture I believe which is a Neolithic culture where they have very famous sort of sculptures of dragons and that's actually the earliest known 3D representation of a dragon apparently was found mm. dating to the Hongshan culture which is excavations in the city of Shifeng in Inner Mongolia that was sort of the main excavation point that apparently these things were found but yeah so so lots of interesting interesting things and I like that you mentioned Alex the the fossils I also had found there was something when I was looking up, why are indeed dragons all over the place? Apparently there were some other interesting theories. One of them was that people just have an instinctive fear of reptiles. Mm, Yeah, I've heard that one. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) like that's, I feel like someone has a bit of a snake phobia to be saying. (laughs) I mean, it's something I've been thinking about because this has been going viral again online the the video of the orangutan like the baby orangutans being taught to fear snakes wait what have you seen this there's this video that goes around like every so often and me and my partner because we're very simple people obviously spent an an evening watching these videos there's like the four schools of like young orangutans who i i'm I'm not sure what the actual context is i assume they must have been either reintroduced or something Mm -hmm. and there's these people that go around and have fake snakes to like kind of ensure that they have that instinct to be afraid of snakes so yeah. they'll, they'll put the snake out and then there's these such cute videos of the you know the baby orangutans really like holding each other in fear and Aww. then a guy and then a guy comes out and he has a stick and then he shows them how to beat the, the fake snake to death with the stick and then you see the orangutans picking out the stick and realizing oh we, we beat it to death to, again to kind of build those instincts into them and you know I was like oh yeah I mean personally I love snakes I think they're very cool yeah. And I always wanted a pet snake as a child, but I get it. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) didn't know they got to teach them that. That's it's one of those things. I guess it's like you know teaching kids about fear of cars running them over and that kind of thing. It's sort of the yeah. When you when you take the fake car out and then you take a stick and you beat the (laughs) right and you beat the car. (laughs) You have the ketchup bottle spatting blood (laughs) everywhere. Be like, oh no. 
I mean, that's kind of what we do in the U.S. I don't know if this is a, I don't know if this is an international thing or a very specific American thing, but we, we, we have this thing called shattered dreams that a lot of high schools do. Where I'm not joking. Sounds bad already. Yeah, like that name. (laughs) There's a big, full scale acting out of a car crash, and they always pick the most popular or loved student to fake die in the car crash, and they have the 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 a real ambulance come a real hearse come a real fire truck it's like this whole thing they do to tell us to not you know like drink drive and things like that but it's i I guess it's a very american thing to to do all this spectacle right well Well, no actually we had that it's not just us no no but we it was like a specialized like place that we went and they showed you each like fear you can possibly have essentially like here's a burnt down building this is what happens when you put fireworks through a letterbox and (laughs) and don't put your arm out for the subway because it's just going to get cut off and like things like that and they'd show you each one and then they'd tell you these horrifying stories and you'd be like okay i'll never do for us there was one with like cars and you had to put your balloon you had a balloon on like a weight and then you had to put that as far from the car like the closest point to the car that you thought you'd still be safe if you ran out in front of it basically and then we had to all do that and keep in mind we're all like eight years old and like the woman came along and went to the first one and just stomped on it and it burst and she's like well this one's dead (laughs) so so you're saying that we we all are orangutans and we are being caught so yeah. actually this you know instinct to fear of reptiles thing is probably you know it's not that much of an exaggeration maybe the fear of the dragon you know that these tales of dragons were supposed to instill a fear of i don't know some something <laughs> some, I guess it depends, you know yeah. dragons do uh, you know not only they come in different forms they mean different things to different people right yeah yeah, yeah that's true yeah well, because I find that interesting, though, indeed, that there's got the different ones. So you've got the sort of power symbol. But is that also, you know, is that fear or is that respect or is it a mixture of the two? <laughs> I guess mixture. Yeah, I mean, because dragons in China, even now, you know, like I have a personal like family shrine, like uh, a lot of other like Chinese diaspora do. <laughs> and I have a little dragon statue on mine because it's, you know, it is a powerful image. It's about you know, bravery and strength and stuff like that. But then, you know, we did an episode on medieval bestiaries where dragons were almost always an allegory for the devil. Right. Yeah. They become quite witchy, I think. So uh, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, you know, it really changes, which I think drag- I think that's why it's really interesting to like talk about dragons because it's a way to kind of look at, you know, ideas that people have around the world, how that changes due to, cultural context but how that also changes across time as well because mm. dragons are cool now <laughs> dragons are super cool Khaleesi and all that isn't it really like, yeah uh, have you seen one haven't you seen one like spray painted on like the side of a van yeah I mean yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> tattoos everywhere with old dragons. actually I just realized while we were recording this I was like I have a dragon tattoo it's on my leg there you go <laughs> there you go I have old a Chinese dragon tattooed on my yeah no and indeed yeah they've uh, it's definitely i just also find it really fascinating like you say that they've really they've developed a lot and they've developed over time but they've also there's been pretty similar things in nearly all parts of the world they have 
something to do with like a serpent or a dragon or a worm or something like that. So it's uh, something just, wriggly. Yeah, universal, <laughs> squiggly, scaly. <laughs> with so I hate to had to cut this discussion short, but I thought that over there was just like a flock of crow spies from Dunlin, but actually I think it is a black rain cloud. So maybe we should pack up this picnic and take cover before we get drenched. <laughs> so uh, we need to cut this episode short of uh, Am My Trowel, but don't worry, we will be continuing next episode with part two with our special guest, Alex. In the meantime, if there's any suggestions people have for an episode that they've gotten from a fantasy book, maybe there's an archaeological concept you don't quite understand that maybe we can explain through fantasy, or perhaps there's something in a book that you want to find out about as an archaeologist. Just get in contact with us via email or social media, all contact info as well as some of the references to the points we've made today can be found in the show notes. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.